You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. He went out again beside the sea. And all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, so at the beginning of the year, we set aside some intentional time to explore the scriptures and to cast some vision uh, for the year ahead, for the year 2019. And really, we, we, we centered that time when we centered the theme uh, around the theme of gathering. And that's actually spelled out in the little card that should be in the seat back in front of you or maybe to the chair to the left or to the right. And really, the passage that we focused on was the prophetic vision that was given to Isaiah, speaking of what God would accomplish through his Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that verse is Isaiah 56. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so what we continue to see, by the way, this is yours for the taking. Go ahead and take this. Put this on your refrigerator so you know how to pray for your church this year. Uh, What we continue to see as we journey through the gospel of Mark is that Jesus is doing this very thing. He is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah, and he is gathering the outcasts. And we see this so explicitly in our passage this morning. Jesus is crossing over barriers. He's breaking some of the religious taboos. He's really pushing the boundaries on what it really means to extend grace and to gather those who are outsiders. Jesus gathers the outsiders. And there are really three things that I want to note from this passage this morning. If you're taking notes, we're just going to dive right into it. Calling Levi, communion with sinners, and confounding grace. Let's look first at calling Levi, verses 13 through 14. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Okay, so there's this repeated theme and this repeated idea, rather, that first appears earlier in Mark when Jesus calls those first disciples Simon and Andrew and James and John. And now it's occurring here again with Levi that Jesus sees his disciples, that Jesus saw Simon, that Jesus saw Andrew, that he saw James, he saw John, he sees Levi, he sees you. This is the good news, that before our eyes ever meet Jesus, his eyes of grace and love are upon us. Before we ever thought to look to Jesus and to seek him, 
Jesus is looking to us, and he sees us. My son just turned 13. Yeah, weird, huh? And he's not weird. It's just weird being a father of a 13-year-old. He's great. And so I've been reminiscing about his life quite a bit and thinking about some stories, and I remembered the day that we met. And I doubt he remembers it, but I do. And so everyone told us that babies can't see, okay, that they, they can't really see that babies, newborn babies are these sort of like infant blobs that contribute nothing to life for months and that sort of thing. They just kind of lay there. But I'll never, remember, I'll, I'll never forget the moment that he was delivered. They, they placed Trent on Michelle. I'm, I'm sitting there to her right. And he defies all science at this moment. And he turns his neck and he lifts that big old head and he stares right in my eyes. Now, I don't know what he saw, and we, we, we probably won't ever know what babies truly see. But there was this moment where I was like, I think he's looking at me. I think he knows that I have been looking for him. I've heard it said before that from the moment that we were born, we were looking for a face. And until we see that face, we don't know who we are. We don't know who we are in this world. Every human being, in other words, is looking for someone that is looking for us. That's why you will continue to swipe right. That's why you will continue to bounce from job to job. That's why you will continue to bounce from city to city and school to school and relationship to relationship because you are looking for someone that's looking for you. G.K. Chesterton once said that the young man that knocks on the door of the brothel is really looking for God. From the moment we were born, we were looking for that face that was looking for us. And Mark tells us that in the midst of the crowd coming to him, this is the scene, and this is very important, in the midst of the crowd, he sees Levi. Now, this is such a timely word for us in the 21st century because I would venture to say that it is a very difficult thing to be an individual in a hyper-connected culture. It's very hard to just be us. See, we thought that the more connected that we were, the more surrounded by other people, the more connected that we would feel, the more important that we would feel, the more known and seen and meaningful that we would feel. And yet one word that probably could sum up our busy, connected, overstimulated culture is loneliness. Loneliness. In fact, a former Surgeon General of the United States named Vivek Murthy said during his time as a doctor, the most common pathology I saw, he said, was not heart disease and it was not diabetes. He says it was loneliness. He goes on to say, we live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. He went on to say that we are in the midst of a loneliness epidemic. We have never been more connected, and yet we have never been more alone. Aren't you glad that when it comes to Jesus, you're never lost in the shuffle? That when you come to Jesus, you're never lost in the crowd? See, in an impersonal world, what the Bible tells us is that there is one, at least one, that sees you, that loves you, that knows you, that sacrifices for you, that comes for you, 
that calls you to himself. Listen to how Elise Fitzpatrick describes the life of the disciple of Jesus. She said, you're not just one in millions, a face lost in the crowd. In the heart of God, you're unique, a distinct person with a particular name chosen from before the foundation of the world. You're not just a number. You're not just a face in the crowd. You are loved. You're adored. You're cherished. You're chosen. See, Jesus not only sees Levi in the midst of the crowd, but also Jesus sees through the stigma surrounding Levi. Now, Levi, a tax collector, would have been a Jewish, or most likely would have been a Jewish official in service of Herod Antipodes. And at this time, tax collectors were extremely despised people. They were despised because they were working for the man. They were helping fuel the Roman Empire that was occupying their land. They were aiding in their own people's oppression. And not to mention aiding and fueling the Roman Empire, but they were also notorious for being dishonest and notorious for extortion, taking more and collecting more than they were due. Levi, amongst the other tax collectors, would have been those who sold out in the worst kind of way. And so because of it, they would have been rejected for it. In fact, when a Jewish person became a tax collector, they were excommunicated from the synagogue and often rejected from their own family. So as far as the community was concerned, when they see Levi, they see an outcast. As far as the community is concerned, when they see Levi, they see an absolute disgrace. You are a shame to our people. You are a shame to your family and the people of God and yourself. You should be ashamed. You're a disgrace. But when Jesus sees him, he sees with the eyes of grace, doesn't he? He sees through Levi's failings. He sees through the stigma. He sees through the hatred. And I have to imagine he sees through Levi's self-hatred too. We don't know how Levi got into this occupation, but he was probably desperate like everyone else. And now he is, there he is, rather entrenched in it. And yet Jesus sees through all of it with a vision of what could be. History tells us that in the 1400s, an artist named Agostino began to work on this large chunk of marble stone, attempting to sculpt it. But after working on this piece of stone, he realized that it wasn't going to be able to be shaped, so he gave up on it. And so that marble stone sat for about 10 years until another artist, just collecting dust, until another artist named Antonio took a crack at it. He began to work on, this, on this, uh, this piece of marble, but he soon realized that it was just going to be too difficult to shape, and so he let it go as well. And so this piece of stone sat for 40 years. Now, stones sit longer than 40 years, but think about that. Being used and purposed and then given up on and just collecting dust in some storage unit somewhere until another artist came along who began that work about 40 years after and saw something in that piece of marble that everyone had given up on, and his name was Michelangelo. And out of this hunk of given up rock, out of this, this, this hunk of marble that so many people had determined was too hard and too, and too far gone, he created one of the most timeless pieces of art, the famous sculpture of King David. What everyone had abandoned, he saw something in it. And here in Mark, the community of God's people saw a reject. 
They saw Levi as someone to cast off. They saw someone that is best to be forgotten, too hardened, too broken, too far gone. And Jesus sees a life to transform. Look with me in verse 14. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now here's that word showing up again, rose. Now we don't know Mark's intention here, but he seems to be alluding to resurrection language that Levi rose. Now, whether Mark intended this or not, what we know from the scriptures is that Jesus Christ rose from the grave not only to forgive us of a sinful past, but to also raise us to the new life that he has created and designed for us so that we may follow him by the power of his Holy Spirit. Christ rose so that Levi could raise. Christ rose so that we could raise too and follow Jesus into the life that he's created for us. And this is exactly what we see happening in the life of Levi. See, Levi was his Jewish name, but he had another name. Any guesses what Levi's other name was? <laughs> At least you didn't say Garrett, because then we know you're chewing tobacco right now. Matthew. Matthew. Levi would, would also be called Matthew, who went on to actually write the Gospel of Matthew. It's where, it's, it's where we have the genealogy of Jesus pointing back to Abraham. It's where we have the story of the Magi. It's where we have the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Supper and one of the most comprehensive accounts of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the Great Commission of the Church, the things that we hold so dearly as the 21st century church God used through this man. So here's the question that we really need to consider today. Who are the outcasts in our midst that God desires to lay a hold of and transform and mobilize into this world to accomplish much for the kingdom of God? Who are those people that you have passed over? Who are those people that you have written off? Who are those people that you have given up on? Jesus seems to be moving in that direction, calling Levi. The second thing we see is communion with sinners. Look, look with me in verse 15. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so Levi does what any follower, genuine follower of Jesus Christ does. He invites his friends and his acquaintances to meet Jesus as well. And because of his outcast condition, guess who he's going to invite? He's going to invite other tax collectors and sinners. And so that's who's at the feast. Now, we may read that word, we, we understand tax collector, but we may read that word sinner, and we're wondering, what, is, what exactly does that mean? Now, sinner can mean someone that is generally immoral, someone devoted to sin. But then the question I have is, like, what's that threshold that makes you a sinner? Is it like one or ten sins or like? A hundred or like a hundred in a day? How do I know I'm not a sinner? How do I... There seems to be something else going on here. Sinner was also a classification for those who didn't adhere to specific rules of ceremonial cleanliness. As one commentator put it, sinner was often the equivalent of a religious outcast. When that term was thrown around specifically by religious, it was often equated with a religious outcast. So think of the person that would be walking down the San Joaquin Street and they look up and they see Reality Church and they think to themselves, I would not belong there. 
That's the religious outcast. That's just a place that I would not be accepted for whatever reason, because of my past or my present occupation or my political alliances or my, uh, you know, my profession or even my sexuality or whatever the case may be. This is the kind of place that I'm just not going to be accepted. The outcast, the sinner. As we look at these Pharisees here, it's easy to think of them just as these like stuffy, no fun people who don't want Jesus to have a party. But I don't think that that's entirely true because the Pharisees of all people would have known that the scriptures describe the kingdom of God as a banquet, as a feast that was going to conclude with a party. In fact, the best kind of party. Look at me, the prophecy of Isaiah 50, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, none of that two-buck chuck, of the rich food of morrow, an aged wine, well-refined. I love that. Isaiah's like, just in case you didn't miss it, it's good food and good wine. Not the cheap stuff, the good stuff. God is gonna roll out the best for his people. And it is going to be a feast. It is going to be a banquet. It is going to be a party. But as Tim Chester puts it, the problem here is not the party. Their objection is who is on the guest list. Look at me in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What is he doing? Why is he eating with them? Why are they at the table? See, out of a desire to avoid impurity, the Pharisees were very exclusive about their fellowship, which meant avoiding meals with Gentiles and avoiding meals with people that didn't adhere to the strict code of conduct of cleanliness. Sinners were people to avoid contact with. This was the fear that the iniquity and the uncleanness of sinners would rub off on them. We never do that today. So here, the mantra was, before there's relationship, before relationship can occur, we need to see change in you first. Clean yourself, and then we will talk. Adhere to our traditions, then we'll talk. But Jesus does the absolute opposite here. Jesus saw sinners as those to engage. His approach is very different. His approach is gracious. Jesus knows that it's grace that changes a person. Jesus knows that it's kindness that leads us to repentance. The good news that Jesus came to preach is not cleanse yourself and then come. All are welcome, but first. The message of Jesus Christ is come as you are. And here you will be cleansed. By my blood, you will be washed. By my spirit, you will be renewed. You will be changed through proximity. You will be renewed in intimacy. See, Mark is showing us that where the people of God are prone to build barriers, Jesus is at work building bridges. And Jesus understood, as we should as well today, that the transforming power of grace is always going to be greater than the contaminating power of sin. That transforming power of grace is always going to be greater than the contaminating power of sin. And so he welcomes them to come as they are, 
Now, to understand the significance of what's going on here, I think we need to understand the table. Uh, an anthropologist named Mary Douglas explains that meals, or the table, throughout time, across different cultures, the table often represented boundary markers. So when you hear meal or you hear table, think boundary marker. Now, that kind of happens today, but as we see, this was particularly practiced in the first century. In other words, the table was the dividing line between who is in and who is out. The table was a declaration of you're accepted or you're rejected. You belong, you don't belong. And because of this, you were very particular about who you ate with. You weren't flipping about the meal. You weren't flipping about the table because the table communicated something. It communicated and solidified things. It was essentially defining the relationship. I'm defining what our relationship is right now by the table, whether you are accepted or whether you are rejected. So when Jesus sits down to eat with sinners and tax collectors, what we need to note is it's not just a casual meal. Jesus isn't just saying, yeah, sure, I hang out with sinners too. I hang out with religious people. I hang out with these people. I hang out with sinners. Jesus is sending a message. Jesus is planting the, king, uh, the flag of the kingdom right now. And what he is pronouncing to those people who are present and to those who are watching, he's showing them a concrete sign of God's love and acceptance. And he is stating something profound here. He is stating the scope of God's rescue. As one commentator put it, instead of sorting people into classifications, which we like to do, by the way, holy, unholy, clean, unclean, righteous, and sinner, rather, Jesus gathers them under the wings of God's grace and love. Jesus is not classifying right now. Jesus is graciously gathering. And this has really been the, the compelling vision of the church throughout the centuries, in fact, there's a letter from the second century by one disciple writing to someone that was looking into the things of Christianity. And so he's writing about Christ and the work of Jesus, and he gets to the church, the bit about the church, and he begins to describe how the church functions in the world, that they're present, but they live as sojourners, that they work, but they don't work for acceptance and approval to become something. They work as unto the Lord. And that they marry and they have kids, but they don't destroy their offspring, and on and on and on. And then it comes to this moment, this one phrase that has resounded throughout history. This is what one disciple wrote to another disciple. I'll just read it. They had a common table, but not a common bed. Is that going to come up? Okay, we'll remember that. They had a there it is. They have a common table, but not a common bed. Think about that line, because in the second century, in this time, it was very common to give your body away flippantly and yet guard who you ate with, right? The common day equivalent would be flippant about giving our bodies away, but very, very reserved in who we say we love. And in that time and in that culture, the Christians did actually, the church did the very opposite, they were extremely conservative with their bodies, shockingly conservative with their bodies, and then astonishing, astonishingly liberal in their invitation and in their hospitality. In fact, historians believe that one of the driving forces between, or behind the, the, the rapid spread of Christianity in the first few centuries was the surprising inclusiveness and really the invitation for who was coming to dinner. 
that spread, to the, uh, that spread throughout the Roman Empire in a time where the church was oppressed, where it, where it benefited no one culturally to become a, a, a Christian. And yet what fueled this was this vision of God's gracious inclusion of all people. Let me turn finally to this, this last point, confounding grace. Confounding grace. Groucho Marx once said this. He said, I don't care to belong to any club that would have me as a member. I don't want to be a part of something if you're inviting me. And here was the idea that if you're going to invite me, you're going to invite anyone, and I'm very concerned about your invitation list. (laughs) Now, while that was meant to be satire, it actually captures the sense of humility that God's grace should create in us. That should be the question that's resounding in our souls this morning. Why would God welcome me? You see, the inclusive nature of God's invitation to belong to God's people should surprise us. It should shock us. It should confound us. But not just because like, oh, I'm surprised. God will invite that person. Oh my gosh, God will invite that kind of person. But because God will invite me. God would rescue me. God would show grace to me. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I think we understand it all the way up to that last point where Paul says, of whom I am the worst, the epitome. But You see, we lose that wonder. Perhaps we've sung Amazing Grace so many times that its words, words that were intended to describe our testimony, have been lost on us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A poor, pitiful, garbage, scoundrel, scumbag like me. See, without that wonder of grace, we're in danger this morning of being lost in this story. In fact, maybe some of us have already been lost in the story. We're in danger of seeing this account here in, in Mark as a nice moral story about not being stuffy Pharisees that turn up their nose towards sinners. That we should be welcoming of all sorts of messed up, messed up people out there and totally lose and totally rather fail to see ourselves as the lost and broken outcast sinner that Jesus Christ invited to the table. What we need to remember is who Jesus invites to the table. Who's at the table and who's not at the table here? Because there's a group that's at the table and then there's a group that's not at the table. So I guess you could say that Jesus is very exclusive. Jesus is very exclusive in who he invites. He exclusively invites sinners. If you're not a sinner, you're not at the table. Look at me in verse 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So who are we? And I hope that you recognize that we are not the righteous. We are the sinners. Now you may be thinking to yourself, how is that comforting? How is that good news? 
Apostle Paul writes in the, in the book of Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, thanks be to God, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ became the curse so that we could be welcomed in. Martin Luther writing on this, and it's sort of a long quote, but it's worth it. He says, when he took the sins of the world, whole world upon himself, Christ was no longer an innocent person. He was a sinner burdened with the sins of a Paul who was a blasphemer. Burdened with the sins of a Peter who denied Christ. Burdened with the sins of a David who committed adultery and murder. Burdened with your sins and mine. In short, Christ was charged with the sins of all men. That he should pay for them with his own blood. The curse struck him. The law found him among sinners. He was not only in the company of sinners. He had gone so far as to invest himself with the flesh and blood of sinners. So the law judged and hanged him for a sinner. And then he says, if Christ bears our sins, we do not bear them. When we hear that Christ was made a curse for us, let us believe it with joy and assurance. By faith, Christ changes places with us. Listen to this. He gets our sins, and we get his holiness. That's where the good news comes in. You're a sinner. But through faith, Christ changes places with us. He gets the sin, and we get the holiness. I want to conclude with a story. A sociologist and preacher named Tony Campalo tells a story of, of a time that he flew to Honolulu to uh, speak at a conference. But because he's from Philadelphia and he flew in late that night, he was like on Philadelphia time where he was wide awake. And so he looks for a diner that would be open in the middle of the night. And he said the only diner that he could find was down some grimy, dark uh, alley. And so he shows up at this diner, he sits down at the counter, and, and the owner of the counter asks, what will it be? And, he gives, and all they really had at the moment was coffee and a donut. So he says, okay, I'll take a coffee and a donut. And as he's sitting there enjoying his stale donut and probably subpar coffee, he says a, a group of prostitutes come in early the next morning after a long night of work. And he's sitting there. He says it's a small diner, so they're really packed. In fact, there's some sitting on one side and some sitting on the other. They're kind of speaking over him. And, and the, one, the one of the ladies says, actually, tomorrow's my birthday. I'm turning 39 years old. And she says, no one has ever thrown me a party. And so the women begin to make fun of her. They're like, you're a prostitute. Would you expect we're going to make you a cake? And she just said, well, I just thought I would ask. So they leave. And he turns to the, the owner across the counter, and he says, I've got an idea, but I'm going to need your help. So they bake a cake, and they go out, and they get streamers the next day. And the next day, or the next night, rather, in the middle of the night, they've got it all set up. And the same time, same place, the woman and one of the other prostitutes shows up at 3.30, and she's greeted with screams of celebration. And presented with a cake. And so she doesn't even know what to do. She's like, I've never received a cake. This is kind of weird. She's like, don't eat it. 
I, I want to preserve this moment. She's like, I'm not mad, I promise, but I'm going to be right back because I'm going to take this cake home to make sure no one eats it. I'll be right back. And so she leaves, and Tony and the rest of the, 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 the people are like this. He said, there's this eerie silence in the room. And he said, I didn't know what to do, so he's like, well, why don't we have a word of prayer? <laughs> and so he begins to pray for this woman that, that God would be good to her, that God would save her, that God would rescue her. And he closes the prayer, and the owner stretches across the table, and he says, you never told me you were a preacher. And he says, you never asked. And then he goes on to say, well, what kind of church are you a part of? Like, I've never heard of a church like that. And he said, in one of those moments where just the right words came, I answered, I guess I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) And the man responds, and he says, no, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. He says, no church exists like that. I've never heard of a church like that. He says, if you're telling the truth, I would join a church like that. I would join a church like that. So would Levi the tax collector. So would the woman at the well. So would the one-time prostitute turned disciple Mary. So would the woman caught in adultery and yet forgiven. So would the persecuting Paul. So would the denying Peter. So would the doubting Thomas. And I have to imagine... So would a city like ours. I would join a church like that. Let's pray.